Hi, this is Mark Talks, a bi-weekly podcast where I'm inviting athletes around the world to an episode called Achieve Greatness. We will talk about things on the pitch and we will talk about life off the pitch. Enjoy watching. So today uh, we have the Tiger Woods of Indonesia with us. <laughs> uh, Timnas national head coach, uh, Bayankara coach, won the championship in Indonesia. Out of uh, a job at the moment, I'm sure he will be back soon. At the moment, he's enjoying his life with some golf and analyzing. I'm happy to have you with me today, Simon uh, McManamy. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Good to be here. I uh, maybe as you know, I launched the podcast uh for the for the reason to to give some inspiration to to the youth in indonesia to to other football players or any athletes or, or people in general just to have mm. a, a different insight in our brain in our minds outside what they see on the football pitch um just to give them a little bit motivation how to reach dreams uh how to believe in themselves so i've been inviting a few athletes from uh, from Indonesia and a few from Europe. One on my list, actually, Sarah recommended you on Instagram. <laughs> already, yeah, she's my number one fan. Bless her. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you was on the list already because uh, we can always uh, speak well and uh, have a good discussion about things. So, mm. yeah, we always do. Who I put there. So uh, I prepared some questions about your managing career, Philippines, uh, Indonesia, life besides football, and some rapid questions uh, in cool. the end. So we start with uh, your early career, Philippines. Young coach, managed the national team already. Mm. Uh, I know, sorry, uh, I think probably not a lot of people know it. Uh, you got good games there, good results. What makes you feel good and what makes you do good in the Philippines, you think? Um, I think it was, we've had a lot of, I've had a lot of discussions with the guys that were, that were there at the time, you know, the, the Filipino players. And we talk back about those days running up to 2010 Suzuki Cup when we made the semifinals. And we all try and add little bits to try and work out how we were able to do what we did and, and really changed the face of football in a whole country. And the best way we can describe it, that it was a perfect storm. It was a lot of, of things coming together that just happened to come together at the right time. You know, I was a, I was a young coach. I was very hungry, but really untested at that, at that level, never been at that level before and came in. It probably helped that I was so naive to the job. I didn't really know what I was undertaking. I didn't know the levels that we might be able to reach. It was just another job where someone said, can you come in and coach this team? And I said, yeah, of course I can. It'd be great. It was an incredible opportunity for me to leave non-league football in the UK to come and work for a national team. I mean, that's, that's fairy tale stuff. True. But never did I think that we would actually be very successful once I got that job. You know, there was always on the flight over in the early training sessions, I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm a national team head coach now. That's, you know, that, that's something really different. What the hell am I doing? And I think, that little bit of naivety, that little bit of not really fully understanding the level I was working at made me very motivated every day just to kind of prove myself. Listen, I can, I can handle this level. I can do it. 
I don't really know what it takes, but I'm just going to work my ass off to make sure that I can attain that level. Um, and, and because I was slightly naive, I wasn't, I wasn't scared of it. I wasn't, I, I didn't know what the level was. And I'm thinking, I'm not quite at that level. I'm going to have to work. I, I didn't really know. I stepped into it totally blind. So a lot of things kind of went in my favor. Um, yeah. And we, we were able to, to pull together a team that was used to getting beat left, right and center. I mean, they used to be the whipping, whipping boys of Southeast Asia. They'd always get thumped five to 10, zero, you know, against everybody. And, um, we just set about making them really difficult to beat. And I knew that we didn't have as technical players as we could, as we did, uh, or, or in other countries. I knew that we would give away technical ability, but we also had some kind of um, Western Filipinos. So guys who were born in other countries, but had Filipino parents. And we could use that. We could use the physicality they bring, their strength and their size over over other Southeast Asians. You know, they, they towered over them. and. And really, we made that our biggest weapon. We, we just set the task of saying, okay, listen, we, you can be more technical than us, but can you beat us? Can you, can you, you know, fight harder than us? Can you compete for every ball? Because that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it every single ball. Every 50-50 is going to be 70, 30, 80, 20 us. And we, we're just going to work on that and see what happens. We're going to work really hard. And we had a sprinkling of talent. You know, guys like Phil Younghusband was at Chelsea uh, for a long time was one of the leading goal scorers in the reserves, played for the first team in some cup games, you know, and was released at 23, but was a was a really, really quality player. And even now, people still ask me, oh, you know, is Phil Young has been available? Is he is he interested in coming across to certain countries? Um, they're still interested in him. He was he was a very, very talented footballer. So to, so to have him as kind of a, a weapon to counter-attack with, we uh, we had to build a, an offence based on that. So we, we were... We made ourselves really very difficult to beat, very organised, very competitive, very physical and very fast on the counter-attack. And it perfect storm, it, it kind of fell into place and worked. You talk about a fairy tale and, and you said kind of uh, that hunger um, maybe was, was, was the right thing you, you could have at that moment of time. Uh, you didn't have fear, I think, because... Uh, you didn't actually know what to expect, you were saying. You was kind of like, I go in and I will see what I expect. Do you think that that not having fear to fail at that moment was key to success? Yeah, I think so. Because I think that because I didn't know the level I was about to be playing at or, or coaching at, I didn't know the teams I was coming up against, I was totally blind to it on the plane over, you know? Um, there was kind of a, it's like throwing a young 17, 18 year old on the pitch. You know, the first time Wayne Rooney played for Everton, the first time Marcus Rashford played for Man United. They're just this, they're, they're so young and fresh and hungry and motivated and fearless. They just go into everything and, and they don't think about who they're playing against. Oh, I'm playing against an international defender today. Oh, we're playing against Inter Milan today. That That's going to cause me some, they're just fearless. They go into it. And not trying to compare myself to those guys, but stepping into that environment, I didn't know who I was up against. I didn't know what Vietnam were like or Indonesia was like. You know, I'm a kid from, from the UK. I, I had no idea. So I think that that freshness, that that naivety almost of not understanding the level I was working at, I just went into I went into it as strong as I could and planned as best I could and, and just did everything to the best of my ability without fearing about what I was facing. I wasn't I wasn't scared of, of any of the teams in terms yeah. of, uh, of what I was working against, because really I, I had no idea. It was it was really, you know, a two or three week preparation uh, for the tournament, and then that was 
you know, I prepare very differently for games now compared to I did the way I did 10 years ago. I'm a lot more experienced now. So it would be a very different, it'd be a very different situation now going into that job as an experienced coach. But back then, I think that the lack of fear really propelled me into, yeah, we can do that and we can do this and we can, because I wasn't thinking we couldn't. I, I didn't know we couldn't. I didn't know what the opposition held. So it helped. I think the experience side of you now brings fear with it? Um, I'm, not, there is a, I'm not sure it's fear. I think we will always be motivated by not wanting to fail. You know, that, that will always be, and as a coach, once you've failed a few times, you start to realize it's not the end of the world. It's not, it's not the be all end all. Just because you get sacked from a job does not mean that you're a terrible coach, you're never going to work again, and, and you know, this, this job's over. This, this career is over. It's not. It just means in that situation, you're not the right fit for whatever reason. Yeah. And what I, what I went through with the national team, you know, we, we started off very, very well. The expectation went through the roof with the AFC draw. We then went into those games underprepared, unfortunately. And, and I, you know, I have to suffer the consequences of that. And that's, that's part of the job. That's part of the responsibility you take on. You know, you know what you're doing when you sign the contract. So that was a difficult one to take. And you went into games, especially with the national team, you went into games understanding now, compared to the Philippines, going in with Indonesia, I understood what was at stake. I understood what was going to happen if we didn't get good results here. And ultimately it happened. So, but I'm still, stay, I'm still here. I'm still around. I'm still being asked to do uh, pundit work on Fox Sports. There's still, you know, uh, a lot of interest in me. So it, it, it's not the end of the world. It's not. Mm. How bad can it possibly be? I still have an incredible family and incredible life and I'm still blessed to do this for a living. So at the end of the day, it, it's about what you see as important and, and you know, what, what are the priorities in your life? The job is just part of your job. It, it shouldn't really define you. You're still you're in, an individual person. So to have a fear of that, to have a fear of not winning, well, that means that that's, that's your whole life. That's the be all end all. If I don't win, okay, I lose the job. I still have an incredible family, incredible life, and I'm blessed to have done the things I've done. So it's, it's how much you let fear be a part of, of what you yeah. do. I think uh, I spoke with uh, Evan Dimas yesterday and Evan Bahdim as well on the podcast. And the topic came a little bit as well, like fear, but also failure. Uh, <laughs> I think we, I think everyone in life kind of needs failure to grow. Yeah. Uh, so we shouldn't be feared about failure it should be part of the growth of us as human beings uh, or us athletes or us as a coach in your example that does this moment of time because you said now it felt like a, a big thing to take it will also grow for you as, mm. a, as a coach i think and and also i think in indonesia a lot of talents maybe they got rejected by a trial at clubs or uh, not get picked for the national team. They can think of it, of it as a failure and will stop with their careers. Uh, but I think that's the moment we should push through and and show show people or show ourselves that we're not giving up. I think yeah, that's a I big... agree. I agree. And I think I think also Indonesia is slightly different from other countries I've worked in. You know, people love their football here. Football is, you know, it's it's, it's beyond passion. It's something else. It's another level. But because of that, that fear of failure is not necessarily fa failing within the team or failing yourself or not scoring that goal. 
it's letting yourself down in front of the fans. Yeah. And in this day and age, what's now come into it is letting yourself down and having to suffer the consequences of social media because that gets just brutal, absolutely brutal. It's one thing bumping into someone in the street and if they've got the guts to say something rude to you, then, you know, fair enough. I'm six foot two. You can have a go if you like, but yeah. everybody can hide behind social media and it gives them the right and the ability to say anything they want to say. They would never say it to your face. No. But unfortunately, in this country, there is a culture of, okay, if they don't win, then we have to bully, we have to blame, we have to point fingers, we have to do something so that they know they failed. And I think in this country, that's one of the big fear factors, is yeah. that environment. Not necessarily the team, the coach, the management. Not so much that. That's football. That happens everywhere. But the added pressure in this country of so many supporters and so much uh, social media and that weight that you carry around. I mean, you can, you can see whenever the players win or, or lose, they go straight on social media to see what people say about them. Now, yeah. oh, 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 I've got lots of likes today. I must have done well. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, people just hammering me, hammering me, hammering me. That, that, yeah. that is part of the modern footballer in Indonesia. And, and for young players, that can be a massive, massive weight to bear. You've been in uh, different countries, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, loads more. Uh, football is a universal language. Uh, yeah. We all know the game. And, but how it, it's not easy. I know it's not easy to adapt in each country because uh, every country has its own culture, its own principles. How does Simon does this all the time to adapt? Uh, what's your secret behind it? I don't know if there's a secret. Well, I think it's just you, you go into the job and you approach it like I always approach the job in the same way. You know, there's, there's a huge amount of evaluation takes place really quickly. And I have to understand if I'm going to be effective. Firstly, I have to understand the context of where I'm working. So with buying car, I stepped into an environment which was police run. So there's a very strict hierarchy of uh, respect, you know, and there's and I'm working with some guys who are still policemen, some guys who are footballers. So there's, there's a mix there. So I'm understanding that within that, there is a hierarchy of, of senior police officers and lower police officers. I'm understanding that uh, Bayankara want to be a better team, but didn't necessarily work. We're trying to break into the top five, having finished eighth the year before. Um, but then the, the, the larger picture, I'm trying to understand what Indonesian culture is like. And I think what helped me with Bayankara is that I've already been here twice before. I had... I've had two clubs here before and both of those clubs effectively I got sacked from. So you could argue that I failed in those jobs, but like you mentioned earlier in the show, when you fail, you, you, you should learn lessons. You know, if you're, if you're an analytical guy and you, you sit and, and take things seriously, you look back at what you've done and you think, did I do the right thing there? What did I learn? You know, how can I do better? So this third time coming back with buying car, I knew that it was, I've got to do something this time because yeah. otherwise, Three strikes and you're out. I'm never, I'm never going to be able to work in Indonesia again unless I do something with Bankara. And um, you know the lessons I've learned with Michakuka, the, the failures with with Palita Bandungraya. We played a lot of young players without too much experience, and uh, and they weren't capable. They folded under pressure. So coming into Bankara, I knew I had a lot of younger players, but I had to support them with with experience. Yeah. So that's why we brought in, that's why we had guys like Dutra. That's why I brought guys in like Spasievich in the first year and Paolo who bring 
huge amounts of experience. And then the second year, I'm signing guys like Zumafo and bringing him in to, to help the younger players. I knew the younger players from my experience with Polita Band and Raya back into 2012 would struggle. Yeah. They just couldn't deal with that. So we had to, to support that. We had to give them confidence through senior players. So you learn lessons when you fail. And, and I think that those lessons I learned in failure with, the, with Polita Band and Ryan and Mitri Kuka, if I hadn't failed with them, I don't think I'd have won the league with Bayern Kara. I don't think we'd have been a, such a strong setup. Yeah, I think I think so. Agree. Um, I know the story. Um, Philippine head coach plays against Indonesia in Gelaro Bung Karno, full house, passionate fans. Uh, tell me your story. I think for me, maybe that was the the fundamental for you why you're still in Indonesia today. But tell me your side. It was, again, if I talk about it now with guys that played for the Philippines back then, so if I catch up with Phil or James or, or any of the guys that played in that team, there's kind of a, a, a knowing nod we give to each other. Like we were there, we experienced it. You know, mm -hmm. like battle-hardened soldiers who go through a war. You know, <laughs> they, they have, that, they have that, no, that knowledge. You know, we were there, you remember that. And whenever we talk about it, everybody who was there still gets goosebumps because of the, of the feeling and the environment that we were coming into. You know, we weren't expected to do anything. Were, I was signed to just take them through qualification and not, not get through qualification, just get them through qualification and then see what happened on the other side. Yeah. And we, we qualified on goal difference, second. So to then go into the group stage and very nearly top it, beat the defending champions at home, make the semifinals and play against Indonesia. I mean, even, even when we got through to the semi-finals, the Philippines still had to, so many obstacles to deal with because at the time there was a huge amount of political unrest. We had two presidents who were both sat in the Sultan Hotel, one in the lobby, one in the restaurant. So as you're coming out, you have to be very careful who you speak to and who you don't. You know, every federation has its politics. The Philippines is no different. Two, yeah. two presidents, both believing they were president and both would kick you out if you spoke to the other one. So you had a huge amount of issues going on back then. And this is nothing to do with BSSI. This is nothing to do with Indonesia. This is Philippines. So back then you had to deal with that. And then because the Philippines didn't have a home stadium, both of the games, both of our, our, our home game and our away game was played in the Bunkano. Now, as it turned out, I'd have probably preferred that anyway, because, I mean, to play in that environment twice was phenomenal. If we'd have played at home, we maybe would have got a full house, maybe, but people weren't really into their football then. That wasn't, the Azcals weren't there until after, you know, they were born through that game with Indonesia, really. Yeah. So to go to that stadium, you know, from the, from the Sultan Hotel to the Bunkano, that's a walk across a car park, but we had to do it in a bus. And I remember very clearly on the bus, there was a line of policemen down the, the corridor of the bus, all armed. And there was three policemen in front of the bus walking because the bus was moving slow, slowly because there were so many people and the policemen were literally pushing people out the way so the bus could move forward and then push another one and the bus would move forward. And it took us an hour and 15 minutes to get from the Sultan Hotel lobby to the Bunkano entrance to get into the changing room, an hour and 15 minutes. And you can walk there quicker. But such was the scale of the Indonesian support. And as we came in, we're sat on the bus, you know, I'm looking out the window and the fans are rocking the back and forwards. So you know, all these Indonesian boys who've never played at this level before, 
never witnessed these these crowds are just sitting on the bus like this yeah. back and forwards going oh my god what are we doing here you can imagine the intimidation from early on yeah. um, and this was the old Bunkano. this wasn't the new one this wasn't the renovated one so when you're in the dressing room and you had all the fans above you there was dust and, and bits just falling down from the guys who were jumping up and down and shaking the stadium and you know the noise was all around and then as you walk out what i love about the Bunkano, it's a fantastic stadium and when what I love about how you walk out is you come up and you walk up the stairs and you walk up the stairs and then boom, it's there in front of you. You know, it's not like a corridor. No. You kind of just, you just arrive. It's like you're born into this stadium and then this just noise hits you. 90,000 people in that stadium and the place was jumping. I mean, the foundations were rocking. There was that much noise in there. It was, it was an environment that I think only a, a very fortunate amount of people get to experience being on the playing end of that you know and and the guys in the philippines still talk about the Bunkano in indonesia now as one of the greatest experiences of their lives and it certainly is for me and the, the ability to go and do it twice um life-changing a, a life-changing experience to experience something at that level okay understandable i have the same when i played there uh, with uh, makasa against Prasija. And it was just mind-blowing, like, Incredible. wow, I want to experience this more often, you know, like weekly. So uh, so you moved to Procedure? I moved to Procedure because <laughs> <laughs> um, you said before, after the Philippines, you, you went to work in uh, in Indonesia um, at Mitra Kukar. Yeah. What do you think of what are you thought of Indonesian football back then? Why um, that move? I'd, I'd been to, so I left the Philippines and I went to Vietnam and I worked in Vietnam and, and um, I had a bad experience there. It was, it was a tough league to work in in the first place, but I was sold the, the, the team by an agent who told me they were competing for the league. And when I got there, I mean, it was quite the opposite. They were down the bottom and struggling. A very difficult place. So I came out of that job kind of a little bit shell-shocked. That was my first league experience in Southeast Asia. I'd been national team. Now I'd had league experience in Vietnam and was a bit shell-shocked. But then I knew that the passion for Indonesian football was was great, you know, because we were only a year on from that game in 2010 or those two games. So yeah. I was looking forward to Indonesia. I wanted to get back there. I'd, I'd had that experience in the Bunkana. I'd, I'd experienced the passion of the fans. And I wanted to work in that environment. I wanted to be around that all the time. So the opportunity then to move to Mitra Kuka was, uh, I, there was no way I was ever going to turn that down. I was really excited to start. In uh, 2017, you joined... Uh... No, 2016. You joined Bayangkara 2017? Seven, 2017. Start 2017, yeah. Uh, became champions. Uh, nobody expected it. Even myself. I couldn't believe it. I still can. <laughs> uh, did you expect it from the beginning? No. No way. No way. I, I, I knew we had a good little team. But it's one thing, you know, as we both know now, we're experienced in Indonesia. It, it's being able to do that every week. It's yeah. all right being a great little team who can move the ball and you see some things in training where you where it's all comfortable and there's no fans and you're in your home stadium and there's no cameras and you see guys doing great things. And you spoke to Evan Dimas, you know, he was a big part of that success 2017. Yeah. The ability he had in the middle of the pitch. But what we were able to do is create a system and create a, a, a feeling within that team where everybody played to their maximum. And I think the difference between buying Cara and everyone else that season is that we were able to, I was able to squeeze the maximum out of that team 
more regularly, home and away. I was able to get those boys to play at 90 to 100% of their capability more often, I think, than other coaches were. Now, for whatever reason, that's not saying I'm the best coach in the world. It's genuinely not. It's just saying that we struck upon a structure and a formation that we liked playing. It suited how we played. And the boys felt confident. They felt that they could go out and beat anyone playing this shape. And because we didn't have home fans, you know, playing in an empty stadium, playing in a full stadium, it didn't really make a lot of difference for us because no one was ever supporting us. So yeah. we never had a lot of fans supporting us. So whether we were against 20,000, 30,000, whether it was an empty stadium, no one was ever supporting us. So it, I think that kind of helped a little bit when we played away from home. And that season and the season after, actually, the second season, we won more games away from home than anyone else. And Was I think that just a factor, you think? It's definitely a factor in winning the league because everybody wins their home game. I mean, you, you've played in the league a few times now, even, you know, uh, the smaller teams. You, well, the first couple of years when you went to Surui, how difficult is it go, to go to Surui? They win most of their home game. But playing away is much, much harder. And I think you win the league away from home. You don't win the league at home. Everybody wins at home. But being able to go away and take points off, guys, that's, that's the difficult one. That's, that's the, the, the golden ticket that you know, gets you to the top of the league towards the end of the season. If you can do that and find a way of doing it, um, you'll be there or thereabouts at the end of the year. Quite funny because one thing why you came to Indonesia was because of the crazy supporters the the fanatic supporters uh then you manage a team which basically have zero no supporters support. <laughs> i know right Because yeah i know, I know. Supporters. so how important are supporters in your opinion they well it's, it's an interesting question you ask that now because we're starting to see you know how important supporters are to players in major leagues around the world if you look at the impact of not having Uh, supporters at games in the UK in the Premier League. You know, there's some funny results coming in. Liverpool getting smashed by Watford and, and taking a beating from Asa. They, they haven't got a full stadium. They haven't got their, their 12th man roaring them on. It's, I don't think the scare factor's there. That fear factor we talked about playing away from home, it's, it's not there. It's just an empty stadium. It's like a training game pre-season. So I think it's, it's a different type of football we're seeing now. In Indonesia, I think if you're going to be successful, Most of the time, you need your home fans. You need your fans to be behind the team. You know, yeah. I think that Bayankara were very lucky. I think that at the time in 2017, procedure and Persib weren't, weren't particularly strong. They weren't towards the top of the league. Um, they weren't challenging for the title. It was us and Bali. And Bali had a lot of home fans, but weren't, they're not a superpower like Persib or procedure. They're not, you know, they're the second level, if you like. Bayankara, yeah. fifth, sixth level, whatever. But for whatever reason, we weren't being challenged by the big boys. So, so, you know, we didn't have to compete with that. But I think that if you, it is a massive, massive advantage to be a good team and then to have a support like Procedure and Persib have. It's a huge advantage. Yeah. Um, over the smaller teams. So, becoming champion uh, at a team without supporters, going and be named as national team coach with 270 million supporters. Uh, you still remember the feeling you felt when you were, when you was named national team head coach of Indonesia? So when I found out I was named national team head coach, I was back in the UK and I'd, I'd been home about three, about two days. And we'd hired this little, Uh, cottage just around the corner from where my friends lived in Sussex 
and we just got there and it was the middle of the night and it was it was kind of cold and it was, it was home for Christmas. I was really looking forward to the Christmas break. And then I got a message um, that I need to I need to check my emails. And I had an email through from um, president of the Federation, who was Joko at the time, uh, Pat Joko. And he said that we've chosen you as our national team head coach. Uh, the contract will follow. And I was stunned. I sat there and said, oh, my God, I'm a national team head coach again. And I'm the national team head coach of Indonesia, the most populous country on earth with football as its number one sport, 247 million people. And I, I got emotional, you know, it's, it was a very proud moment. Um, and all right, you know, it, it didn't go quite well. It, it didn't go as well as I'd hoped it would go. No one wants to lose games. No one wants. No, no, I just want to know the feeling. But I don't want to know that, if it's that, that feeling, that feeling I was, I was bouncing off the walls. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Believe it. But, but I was around people that didn't really understand what that meant. Yeah. You know, I tell them, I'm national team coach of Indonesia. Oh, nice, new job, well done. But didn't really grasp what that meant. If I talked about it back here, people are like, Jesus Christ, really? You're national team coach of Indonesia? Oh my God, that's massive. Are you yeah. sure you want that job? You know, there'd have been a lot more understanding. Okay. But uh, amazing. It, it was a great feeling. It was a great feeling to be a national You know, the, if you're a football purist, if you love your football, to be a national team head coach is one of the best feelings in the world. To have a country stand behind you when you go into battle with another country. I mean, it, it, it's an incredible feeling. I, I, I get emotional at three national anthems. My own, Filipino national anthem, Indonesia Raya. That still, they <laughs> went to my son's school not so long ago, just before COVID. Um, and there was an assembly and he goes to an international school. So they had a national anthem and then they had the Indonesian national anthem. And I start getting choked up. I start going, because <laughs> the last time I heard it was in a stadium against Malaysia in front of 80,000 Malaysians as national team head coach with them, you know, Garuda on my chest. You can't help but buy into that. You can't, you, you know, it, it takes some weird type of person for that not to sink in, for that, that not to, to resonate through you. It's just, it's just a very, very proud moment. So hearing it in my son's school, you know, I've got tears coming down. Like, what, what am I doing? What's going on here? And Sarah's elbow, my wife's elbow and me to just man up a little bit. But that's, that's what it does to you. That's what it does to you. It, it just, wasn't on my list, but uh, I will just put it through. Let me hear the Indonesian. <laughs> <laughs> Not a chance. You know it better than I do now because you've got the passport. So you should be able to sing it now. Wow, I've done it too many times, Paul. Too many yeah, times. I bet. I bet. Uh, so you, you've seen the biggest crowds, I think, managing uh, Timnas Indonesia. Uh, how did you feel with, with, you say, okay, so many people behind you. And how was it for you, the feeling to be able to stand there in front of thousands of thousands of people uh, who support your team? So not at, at the Philippine side, but at, at your yeah. side, at, at Indonesia. It's a... Uh... It's quite, a, it's quite a strange, abstract feeling, really, to, to walk out in that Bunkana and that's your home stadium. You know, we discussed earlier, I've been on the other end of that. I've been on the receiving end of being in that stadium as the opposition, and it's really not nice. So to come out there and this is home, this is us, this is, this is what I'm representing, is, is an incredibly, incredibly proud moment. Um, you know, we played away with Myanmar for my first game and we got the win, but that was in an empty stadium. You know, no one watched that game. And we yeah. got a lot of 
press for, for how we played and it was something a bit different and some new players involved, which was great. But no one really watched that. But then when we played Vanuatu, the stadium was kind of 60%, 70% full and we put in a really good performance and won that comfortably, you know, against lower opposition, yes. But that was a that was a really good feeling to win my first home game. I won my first away, won my first home game. Um, that was an, a really, really nice feeling to walk around the stadium and after a 6-0 uh, a comfortable 6-0 victory. That, these are the things you remember as you get older, those little moments, those little snippets, those those mental images and and then the emotions that the that, that situation invokes. You know, I will I will never forget how it felt to stand in that Bunkana when it's full against Indonesia and for Indonesia. I will never forget those feelings. It's 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 almost indescribable at times. Yeah, I can I can I can understand that. Uh, you you spoke a little bit before about it. I don't I don't want to know everything. I don't think people should know everything. Uh, but just a rough story from your side. Uh, on a story, uh, yeah. the public maybe thought and saw you as a failure. Uh, I know the story. Uh, I didn't think it was a big failure, but it's not up to me as a decision. But your story behind the results what 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 do you want to what kind of message do you want to give across um i i, I don't want to sit here and, and and make excuses you know that's the, that's the last thing i want to do i, I put my name on that contract proudly because i'd won the league i was selected as that head coach and i was proud to take that job on but i fully knew what would happen if results didn't come in um you know i'm not, i wasn't going into that blind like the philippines job And we started off really well. We had we had a really good time. We had a, a two or three week training uh, camp leading up to the first game against Myanmar. We had a really good, a, a fantastic training camp in Australia with players who were out of the spotlight. There wasn't cameras. They didn't have to always do interviews. They were just they were just these foreign kids playing football. That's all in Australia saw them as. So they, they didn't have to do interviews. There wasn't press around. We were just able to get on and train and relax and and you know build a team. Um, and I really enjoyed that training camp. And I think a lot of the players did as well. So we went into that Myanmar game really well prepared. And, and that's what happens, you know, uh, away to a team higher than us in the standings. All right, it's Myanmar, but they were higher than us in the standings. And that could have been, if you speak to, to Fano Lillipalli, uh, he still has nightmares about that game because he must have missed four or five opportunities that he'd put away every day of the week. So that could have been double figures, that game. Um, the fact it was 2-0. But to win my first game was important. The fact that it was away from home was important. Um, and then, you know, going to Jordan, that was that was the next big test. And I was pushing, you know, the, the Federation was saying, do you really want to go to the Far East? And I said, well, listen, or oh, the Middle East. I said, what happens if we get into World Cup qualifying and we have to go to the Middle East, as we did? We can't shy away from it just because once we lost their 10-0, how do we get better? We go there and fail, but we learn. Exactly. But if we don't want to go there, how, how, can we, how can we learn if we don't put ourselves in those positions? What How do we know what flights to take? How long it's going to take? The, the effect it's going to have on the players? What food we have? To, how do we know these things? Yet you want to prepare for World Cup. You know, you, you've got to do this. We, we've got to try and push for a game in the Middle East. Um, so we did. And we got we managed to get the game against Jordan. And we planned, again, another two-week training camp running up to that. But then at the same time, If you remember back then, there was the uh, presidential election and we had the President's Cup, the Piala president, at the same time as the training camp. 
and I was being pressured in the PSSI offices to, to shorten the training camp. And I said, listen, this is preparation for World Cup. We're going to the Middle East. This is tough. This isn't easy. This isn't Myanmar. This is Jordan. This is a really tough team. So in the end, I was, I planned 10 training sessions over two weeks. In the end, I got four. Yeah. So my original plan was 10. That was shortened to four because we had to fit in the Piala President Games, a preseason tournament. So the pressure from above was saying that the preseason tournament was more important than going to Jordan and preparing for the World Cup. And this is the frustration. This is the annoyance that people don't get to understand and get to see about working at that level. There are so many other layers and other things that you have to take on board. Um, so that's why we went to, to Jordan, but we learned a lot there. You know, we, we learned a lot about shape and formation and what we can and can't do and playing against good players and how far we have to travel. And there was a lot of frustration coming back from Jordan because I think we didn't do ourselves enough justice. A lot of the players wanted to play Jordan again because they didn't really fear them. They thought, you know, at home we would, we would beat Jordan. Yeah. Um, but as it, again, we couldn't get a second game. Nobody wanted to play Indonesia. And certainly no one wanted to come to Indonesia. And, and yeah. that's the stig stigma, unfortunately, that was, was carried for a while. So I'm, I'm asking, you know, where's this second game? Who are we playing? What's going to happen? And the only reason we ended up playing Vanuatu is because I knew the now coach of Bayankara, Paul. And I phoned him and said, listen, pal, we, we've got a, a, a day here. Is there any chance you guys want to come over and play us? They were just below us in the rankings as it was. I thought, you know, it's going to be a game. We've played a tough game. We play any, an easier game. That's good preparation for where we need to get to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fortunately, Paul made it happen, pulled a couple of strings. But it was only the fact that I knew the head coach that we had that second game. If I'd not known Paul, we wouldn't have had a second game there. The PSSI weren't able to help. They, they, they just, well, we don't know anyone. Do you know anyone? Hang on a second. Well, I need to organise the games myself. Yeah. So we got through that. We did quite well. But the nail in the coffin, really, I think, was the draw for World Cup. It was always going to be, whether I was successful or not, that was going to be judged on how we did in AFF 2020. So that was yeah. going to be the, the, you know, did Simon make it to the final? Did he win? Did he get knocked down in the group stage? That was going to define whether I'd been good or not. There wasn't really a lot of emphasis put on World Cup when I signed the contract. That, that wasn't really talked up too much. We'll try and do as best we can in World Cup, but really it's about AFF. But then all of a sudden, the AFF teams get pulled out in World Cup. And it's like that judgment from AFF that was here is now brought forward, you know, 16 months. Yeah. So it's a very different situation now. Now we've only been together six months and we're going into these games and people, are, are they want us to win. Malaysia had been together a lot longer. They were a much more established team. They had a coach there who was in there two years. Their league had stopped. They'd been training for two months in lead up to the game against Indonesia. We were still playing league games. You know, there was guys coming in two, three days before the camp. And it's not like I could pick anyone else. I couldn't then go for younger players because I wasn't allowed to play the younger players because they had um, other AFF games to play and they hadn't played league games. So it, it was a really tricky situation trying to make selections. It's really very difficult. If you want to pick the best players, the teams wouldn't release them. Oh, well, we need, we need those back. You know, we can't let you have three players from one team. Three players, right? So... What's more important here? The league games or the national team playing in the World Cup? Yeah. But this, these are some of the things you just have to deal with. These are, the, these are the politics at the highest level that somehow you have to negotiate. You have to, to find ways around that obstacles. And the sad thing about the Malaysia game, I thought for, for 60, 70 minutes, we were really good. We played very, very well. 
the first half we were excellent. We scored two really good goals that we'd worked on in training. Everything was going quite well. And then it's just... So despite despite not wanting to give excuses hmm. for, for that time, especially the, the support wasn't really there to help you make the best out of it. That's basically the bottom line. As I well. think uh, I, I don't. It's, it's difficult to be critical of supporters because you know they they they've been here long, long before I was here. The supporters, yeah. I I I don't want to speak badly of supporters um, because I understand what part of society makes up supporters and the reasoning for that. And and you know they are the best and worst thing about football in this country, without a shadow of a doubt. What I would like is, is a little bit more understanding of, of some of the issues and where a lot of where the blame is, is held. You know, there's, there's a lot of mixed messages that go out on social media to make sure that, you know, the masses are controlled. But people are smart. They understand. Uh, they can see when, when players are playing. And, and those that get it, get it. And those that don't, don't. And that's just how it is. But when the first game against Malaysia, when the players run out for the warm-up, and a flag is held up that says, fuck you losers, you know, across one end of the Boncano. And that's, we haven't even kicked a ball yet. And we're, we're coming back from a FIFA ban to play back in the World Cup. It's the first time we're allowed back in. And before a ball is even kicked, we're getting fined again. Yeah. You know, that has an effect on the players. This constant frustration. Why, why can't we not just be positive? Why can we not just be behind the team? Why can we not just be aggressive towards Malaysia well that's secondary firstly it's about Indonesia and the team but it, yeah. you know you always get this feeling that, that some people just want to fight they just want to cause trouble they want they want to be ultras or whatever they want to call themselves um, unfortunately this was it's like the UK back in the 70s and 80s that was just as important as supporting a team was making sure that you could fight against opponents in the car park afterwards it's not a big part of football for me and it shouldn't be there uh, and I think it spoils an incredible country's passion for football. Is it, does it go in line, you think that, uh, of course, winning is the most important in football, we both know, and especially yeah. for a coach, maybe that's defining you as a coach even more. But yeah. do you think that Indonesia sometimes forget forgets, or maybe is not educated enough about the process of going to the stage of winning? Like winning yeah. can be an instant thing that will be there all the time. Of course, in a, in a fairy tale world, your team will always win. But in reality, it's the process towards that moment. It's see my thinking going into those games against Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, was that we haven't had enough time. Time and we haven't had enough time to play the way we had played against. Uh, Myanmar early on and Jordan you know we played with three at the back which a lot of teams are now doing that's Vietnam play it very successfully because it could be very defensive it can be very attack minded it's a nice flexible formation and it took a little bit of time for players to understand but we played it very well against Myanmar we played it all the way through Australia we played it against Jordan and we saw some of the limitations of what some players could do in it and what, what some couldn't but then the draw comes out and we're looking at that Malaysia game and we're saying well is this the right platform to play three at the back? Are we able to, to justify playing the way we, we've been planning for the last kind of four or five months, given the fact that now expectation has gone through the roof and people expect us to win that game? 
are yeah. players still going to perform in that new we talked about fear earlier are we going to go into that game with three at the back and players are going to be scared well we're only playing three at the back today against malaysia in the world cup oh my god is there were so many factors there that we're thinking and it, you know i sat down with with my other coaches and i said what do you think should we go ahead with this do you think we should keep playing the way we want to play should, could we should we keep taking the process forward in in changing the style of of, of play and, and finding a formation that fits or do we go back to a formation where players are comfortable where they understand the roles you know in a 4-2-3-1 a lot of teams in the league play that we played it against Vanuatu and looked strong so do we do we drop back to that formation where it's a little bit more familiar because we don't have time with these players on the pitch we're not going to get the time because they're playing league games we can't have a three month training camp like Malaysia can so how do we how do we combat this how what do we do and the decision you know i made the final decision that we would switch to a 3 4231 instead of a 343 that we've been playing and, so short um, that of long term building expectation we we kind of had to go short term because we knew the expectation would be through the roof and if we if we went through those games and got beat 3-0 4-0 5-0 playing a new shape oh i people say well yeah they're playing a new shape yeah but we lost i'd be out of the job if i lost 3-0 to malaysia straight away i'd been out of the job after that game such would have been the pressure So we we had to kind of find a balance. It was it was a really tricky that draw made it really difficult for us because if it had been Jordan, Oman, Uzbekistan, we could have played 3-4-3, gained confidence against them and the result would be minimal. It wasn't yeah. it was it doesn't really matter whether we beat Uzbekistan or not, no one really cares. But if it's Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, it's very it's different. It's it's very different. The expectation rises because people think we can win the games. But based on pure hope not based on any technical factor because we were miles behind in terms of preparation. No, okay, back to uh, back to back we finished with uh, some questions about Timnas why in other people's minds maybe it wasn't going well and you explained why yeah. your opinion about it. I think for me it was clear. I think the public should know it was clear. If you want to add anything on where we left last time, feel free if you missed anything out. Otherwise, I will move on with the next questions. But if you have on your mind something you want to share, please share. Uh, no, not really. Just um, you know, it's it's no secret. I think anyone who understands football understands the situation that the national team was in. Understands the fact that nothing was done with the senior national team for at least the last two three years. You know, Luis Milo came in great results and used a lot of the younger players in order to get a good result at Asian Games, but. The only senior players he used was Lila Pali and Beto who scored all the goals for that team in Asian games. So then when it comes yeah. to the senior team, you know, so many senior players just weren't getting used. Um so it was it was a difficult it was a difficult situation. It was it was just tricky. Um and to add to an even more tricky situation when that draw was made and and those teams came out and the expectation went through the roof that that was just a really bad mix a really bad cocktail it it didn't it didn't work out and it was it was a difficult one that me and my staff had to sit down and we had a lot of discussions about are we ready to play with three at the back can we really play a new shape do we have enough time in training probably not do we have to revert back to something that players are familiar with and really for the time being just get through these games not necessarily develop not necessarily try and take the national team forward let's for the sake of the national team let's get through these games with all right performances and then we can talk about it in the new year we can push on for AFF 2020 but expectation as it is you know 
Uh, everybody knows the results. The, the one against Malaysia was frustrating because we played really well in the first half, I thought, and looked fairly comfortable. Um, but um, the amount of games that players were playing, just, just it was too much. And we dropped off after 70 minutes. And what's sad is that about that first game, you know, the, the two things that we talked about was the right fullback gets very high and puts in a lot of crosses. He's got a lot of quality uh, and a lot of their goals come through him. And the finishing will be done by their uh, naturalised player. He'll be the one that puts the ball in the back of the net. And for the last goal, he gets down the wing, puts a good cross in, the naturalised guy puts it in the back of the net. It, it's, for a coach, that's when it's really frustrating, is when opposition scores goals that you've already talked about in the pre-game. You already know it's going to happen. The players know it, but for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. That's the frustrating bit. But um, yeah. it is what it is. And I think people will always, will always, you know, people that don't necessarily understand will just point fingers at the coach and, and that's that's how it is and I've got to be strong enough to deal with that and I am comfortably but you know there are a few things that we can point to to say well if this was better we'd have had better results if, if this would worked in our favour if we'd had a better draw if the league hadn't been playing at the same time if we'd had the same preparation as Malaysia Malaysia I'm sure we'd have won those, those both those games against Malaysia is what Agreed. it is Agreed. we move on you know we move on and uh, we look at what's next yeah, I know you as a strong coach, uh, good character, uh, always positive. I think that made you also very successful in Indonesia. A little bit personal question as well. Maybe a thank you note as well. I wasn't naturalized yet. I am today. A huge thank you to you for calling me up last season already for the national team. I have to thank you a lot for that uh, moment as well in my career because I think it helped me as well being where I am today. What was the reason for you to, to call me up already at that moment? And why did you think I uh, should be part of your plans? Well, I thought at the time there are, there are a lot of good midfielders, but a lot, not many with the experience that you have. And going into these national team games, you know, it was, to be honest with you, with yourself, it was more short-term thinking. Who can I bring into the squad who's just going to add a bit of steel and protect some of the, the younger players that we're trying to develop? So we're trying to find that balance. You coming in with the experience you have, you know, a, a strong physical centre midfielder who can play, you can add to the playing style, but you can also back up strength in the middle there. Um, and obviously, if we're playing national team and, and playing against different cultures, it's one thing just playing Indonesian culture all the time. You know, the, the players are comfortable with that. But what we saw, what we learned from Jordan is that some players go into a bubble when they have, when it's up against them. They good players that we know and love that are very, very good in the league domestically then travel and all of a sudden they're outside of their comfort bubble and, and, and that becomes then really difficult. And the thought process for you coming in would then, you'd be able to, to kind of shepherd them through it, put your arm around them and help them through those games because of where you've played and where you've, you know, where you, your career has taken you. You're used to adapting to different cultures, whereas some of the Indonesian players weren't. So the thought process of bringing you in was to just add a little bit more experience to that midfield, help players through, you know, push them on a little bit, and and create this this um, you know team that can be very difficult to beat. Um, and at yeah. the time, I thought, well, you're going to be a part of this. You know, your 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 passport is on the way. Why not get you in early while we're having training camps, just so that you, that, that you start to get used to. Firstly, me as a coach, it's the first time we've worked together. Um, yep. We wanted, we were still in the in the mind to think about playing a different shape, so wanted to get you used to that, so that by the time you had your passport, you'd already been in the team, players were already used to you, you'd already had an effect, and you just slipped straight into that squad. 
there wasn't a kind of transition period for you playing at that level. So it was the, to be fair, it was the same with Dutra. You know, I, I as soon as I knew that he was on his way to getting um, a passport, I wanted his experience in that team as well. It was never my intention to play a full team of uh, naturalised players. I, I, I didn't want to do that, but I think that there are a lot of teams in this part of the world who are benefiting greatly from doing that. You know, the Philippines, yeah. look at where they've gone to now based on playing. It's not the same, it's not naturalised, but they, they're effectively they're using players that play in other leagues as opposed to the Philippines. League. So I wanted to take a little bit of that to help some of the younger players that were with Lewis Miller in the Asian Games previously to kind of grow. And we kind of combine that squad. But like I yeah. said, when that, draw, when that draw came out, it became less about development and it became about getting through those games because I knew that yeah. my job was on the line as soon as that, that draw came out. So it, it, that period from, from kind of the start of the draw through to Christmas, that period, we just had to survive. That's needed. But I like the guys that, you know, go out with the mentality that, um, you know, if you get kicked in the first five minutes, you stand up. And the harder you get kicked, the quicker you stand up. Just to let that guy yeah. know that, no, 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 that's not going to happen today. You kick me all okay. you want, but, you know, the harder you kick me, the quicker I'm getting up. Um, that, that's the mentality I like. That's your guy. Play. That's my guy. That's that's the guy that I'm going <laughs> to put first name down on the team list every week. Okay, so everyone who will work together with Simon in the near future, be that, be that guy. Take note. Take note. Any, anyone Take who dives, no, I, don't, I don't really have time for diving in. What I say to players in this day and age is that if you get fouled, let the referee know you've been fouled. However way, however way you need to do that. But if you haven't been fouled and you're trying to gain a, uh, an advantage from that, then I'm not interested in that, even as your coach. I, I, at Palita Bending Raya back in the day, uh, because I had a lot of young players, I would make them do push-ups if I thought they dived. And they would, they would do push-ups in friendlies in the middle of the game. I'd be shouting at my centre forward, 10 right there where you're coming off the pitch. So he goes over and has to do 10 push-ups in the opposition penalty box while the game's going on. He's doing push-ups. The opposition's looking at me going, what on earth is going here? But you can guarantee yeah. he, he was that embarrassed. He never did it again. It, never, ever did it again. He won't be diving. No, he won't be diving again because he was that embarrassed to do push-ups. So um, exactly. I don't like diving. But you have to let the referee know you've been fouled because it uh, you know, it's, it's difficult for them. True. Simon Lewis in the first half comes back in the dressing room. What will he be saying to the team? Oh, I, I have plenty of, of different characters that I can bring out at any time. I think every coach has to. <laughs> you know, th th this, this is the whole this is the whole skill of coaching. As a coach, you have during once the whistle starts, you know, as soon as that uh, that whistle blows, during the game you have minimal input, and then you have a 15-minute break of which you have about eight minutes to do something. By the yeah. time the players have walked off the pitch, walk back on the pitch, you've got eight minutes. So I put on my watch, I tie, I have a timer of eight minutes and I have an alarm okay. that goes off when it's when it's four. And I do that just in case for the first four minutes, I'm taking the paint off the walls because I'm so angry. That alarm reminds me, okay, I can't go eight minutes angry. I've, I can go four minutes angry, shouting, screaming, throwing things, that's fine because I need that reaction. But then I've got to be constructive. Then I've got to say, okay, listen, this is this, you've had your telling off. This is how we get back into the game. Now you now I've got your attention. Now you understand that you haven't played well. This is how we get back in the game. So I, I always have that eight minute and, and four minute alarm that goes off. But nice. I think this the skill of coaching is to be able to to raise the volume and get a reaction when you need to. Role model. Simon's role model. Who is his favorite coach? 
where you look up to or have you been looking up to in the past um i don't know you know i i like to take little bits from everyone uh, i i love the way that Mourinho is not scared of playing the way he wants to play he, he's not searching for beautiful football he's just searching for trophies and winning he doesn't care about possession he doesn't care about what people say about his teams he just wants to win and you, you can't argue that he's probably one of the the coaches that's won the most in the in recent times Guardiola yeah. you have to be impressed by uh, in, in terms of how his sides play but he always plays with really really good squads I'd love to see him do that with with the greatest respect Burnley or West Ham can he still play the same football um, an interesting question but there was a guy that, that I've always looked up to and I have his uh, I've read a lot about him was a guy called Jock Steen who was a Scottish manager and uh, back in the 60s he was head coach of Celtic now he he took a Glasgow team a team of players from Glasgow all the way to European what was the Champions League final and beat Inter Milan in the final uh, in Lisbon beat them 2-1 and what he did with that team, every single player on that squad, on, in that 11 that played that day, they came from within 10 miles of the stadium. And that's an incredible statistic that will probably never be beaten. So to go up against the odds with a team like that, of just guys who wanted to fight for the badge, you know, that was yeah. a real inspiration for me. And I, I, took a lot, I took a lot from his teachings. He wasn't necessarily all about great football. He was about... How do we how do we come together as a team? Can we work hard enough to get the three points today? And, uh, he was he was a real inspiration. Okay, interesting, very interesting. Any any words for uh, a young coach who will just start their career in Indonesia or or abroad, whoever is watching? But what would um, be your advice to them? You're going to win at times in your career, but you're going to lose, and you're you're not going to win every game you play. And dealing with how you lose is probably more important than dealing with how you win. You know, if you win, fantastic. You go to sleep, great. If you lose, especially in a job like I've had over the last couple of years, you know, your job might be on the line, the pressure increases, and you have to find a way to deal with that. Personally, away from it, mentally, at home, you know, how you deal with that pressure on your shoulders. Um, I think making sure that your team understands that they are going to lose at times, but when they lose, then they have to learn. If they lose and, and don't learn, then, you know, you're doing something wrong. So I think understanding that the road is going to be tough. You're not going to win every game. And, you know, if, if you want a career in this game, you're probably going to be sacked a few times as well because it doesn't always work out. Nothing, it doesn't always fall into place. Sometimes it does, by Ankara. Sometimes it doesn't. And you're dealing with things outside of, of your control. Uh, and, yeah. you know, in this part of the world, you, you just have to be content with the fact that a good percentage of my job especially with the national team was out of my control but I'm still responsible for it I'm still responsible for that but I'm not doing that 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 wasn't anything to do with me but I get blamed for it that's part of my responsibility that's why I put my name on the contract so yeah I think I think getting your head around that is uh, especially for this part of the world is is a big factor in success who do you think of Indonesian players you know or in the country will become a good coach after the playing career? Um, good coach. Well, I think one on the way there is, is Firman Utina. I think he's on the way to being a very good coach. He's um, very technically minded, wants to know about the game, likes the analytical stuff. Um, another one that will be a good coach. 
I think maybe someone like Beto. Beto would probably go on to be a very good coach. I think, you know, he's, he's coming towards the end of his career. He can still what he does what he does, but he knows he's coming towards the end of his career. But again, he's someone who knows the game, who's very good with people. Um, yeah. Can translate that into a way that people will probably want to play for him. I think he would be very, very good at, at, uh, at coaching. Any advice you give young players in Indonesia who are realizing their dreams at the moment, who are fighting hard every day, who have uh, periods in their life which will be tough, which will be hard, which will be challenging? Just a, just a general advice from, from a national team head coach, from a coach who has been won the championship. What would be your advice be to young children in this country? There are a million, million obstacles in the way of youngsters making it through to the, to the national team. But it happens. And you have to have the belief that day to day, everything you're doing is just giving you more and more of a chance. When you stop doing the extra, when you stop doing the extra runs, the extra training, the extra free kicks after practice, that's when your chances start to drop. Because if you're training to be the best in Indonesia, then you're never really going to get there. You should be training to be the best in the world. You should be, be training to be better than anyone you know. You should be doing things and looking for ways to find ways of getting better that other people aren't doing. And there is a, a million examples in the world for you to do that. But if you're just training to get into a Persib team, to be, to be good for Indonesia, that's not enough. And that's one of the problems Indonesia have had over the last 20, 30 years. There's not enough players who have the vision to say, I want to be the first player. I want to be the best player in you know, my generation. I, I want to be the first Indonesian player to play in the Premier League and set that as a target. You know, And, and it's, it's possible. It's, I don't think it's a million miles away. There's a huge amount of, of talent in Indonesia, a huge amount of talent. It just, a lot of the time it goes uncoached or it goes badly coached from a young age and once it gets to senior levels there's a, a problem with you know youngsters just being uh, available to take money and, and be comfortable in a in an Indonesian league bubble if an, if more players were pushing beyond that if more players were you know pushing that bar that higher it would create more opportunities for for, for more younger players to come through as well so I, I think you know don't train to be the best in Indonesia train to be the best in the world that that will only push you on to higher and greater things. Agree, totally agree. Do you think that uh, that Indonesian players in general are too comfortable in their comfort zone? Yes, hundred percent. And they are fearing they are fearing actually to go out of that comfort zone to explore. I think there's two parts to this. I think personally, Indonesian players are too comfortable because one of uh, culturally, one of the main priorities for any young Indonesian male growing up is to provide for his family. That's such a big motivating factor, more so than Lamborghinis and women and, and you know, all of this. That, that's not as important. Maybe it is further on down the line, but when they first get into football, it's about providing for family. And unfortunately, yeah. because money is good in Indonesia compared to maybe other leagues around the world of a, of a similar standard, once you do get your first contract, you've ticked that main priority straight away. You've looked after your family and, and probably your family's family. So it's a difficult one then to then, okay, now I need to kick on to the next level. When your number one priority, you've just ticked off the list. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a difficult cultural trait. But then you also have to factor in the fact that this is the most populous country on earth with football as its number one sport. And with, with social media the way it is, the players that went to Jordan, as soon as we failed against Jordan and lost 4-1, they're on their phones in the dressing room. What are people yeah. saying about me? Oh my God, you know, what they, 
what they're saying about my family. They're calling me uh, Anjing this, Anjing the blah, 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 blah. But this is the pressure that comes with playing in Indonesia, is that when you play in front of so many people, all of those people who watch you play then have a voice as soon as you get home. And if you start looking at your phone, you hear every single one of those voices. So it's this kind of, you know, you yeah. want to push, you want to be good, but at the same time, you don't want to fail too many times and that fear then becomes a factor. They don't want to fear in front of so many people because so many people will tell them you have failed, you're not a very good player. And then that's difficult to deal with. So it, I think it's quite individual to Indonesia, these problems, both culturally and from a social media sense. It, it, it does make it very difficult. We're not, this country isn't necessarily massively positive about how the way players play. They want they want yeah. an answer. They want an, they want not an excuse. They want to blame. They want they want a, something they can point out and say that wasn't right. Not never mind, boys. We'll get them next time. And that's half the time what these players need. Nice message. Very nice message. And I think uh, people watching the, the the generation to come who's watching can learn a lot from that uh, message. Uh, because what you said, I, I also agree with the fact that there's a lot of talent here, uh, yeah. a lot of raw talent, which in many ways is uneducated. And one of the main reasons I started this podcast was to, to be able to help a little bit with education. I don't say I do everything right and I do everything good or you, but I think... By speaking about it, you make it an, a topic and, and people can take out their own uh, positives yeah. from it. And I think, I think can... we, we've had this discussion quite a bit. I think it's quite interesting when two football people talk. It's a very different conversation from someone from the media asking you questions. Mark, how do you think you played today? How do you think you did this? You know, it's very stale, very boring questions that you just switch on, you know, play the automatic answer that you do every press conference. When it's two football people talking who both know what it's like, who both understand the context a lot more and have had to go through it. The conversation, the information that comes out of that is so much more interesting. I, I was listening exactly. to the one you did with, with Irfan and some of the things that were coming out about his experiences there were really fascinating. Yeah, which maybe he have never shared in public yeah. because the, the questions never really popped up because it was we'll, always we'll the same. That. They did touch on that. And uh, even I knew things out of his postcard which I never knew about him. I think that's... A little bit. Yeah, very, very worthwhile. Very worthwhile. Very, but it should be very interesting to listen to if people are prepared to take the time to sit down and listen to it. Exactly. I have a few uh, rapid questions for you. Okay, uh, go so for I it. Don't, <laughs> I don't think too much. Yeah. Fire your way up to me. Attack or defense? Defense. Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola? Jose. Lose in the last minute or got many players injured? Lose in the last minute. He cares about his people. I love that. Yeah. So no marking or man marking. Man marking, do your job. Most talented Indonesian player. Evan Dimas. Coaching club or coaching country? Oh, that's tough. Different, 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 different jobs. Very different jobs. Um, um, club. If you can choose one Indonesian club to coach now, which you prefer? <laughs> oh, wow. Thanks for getting me in trouble. Um, 
Persidia. Um, <laughs> buying car. Easy way out. Philippines <laughs> or Indonesia? Um, Indonesia. I did all I can with the Philippines. Indonesia, job half done. Go back to Europe or move to another Southeast Asia country? Uh, um, Europe. It's got to be Europe. Phil Young Ten years husband. Now. Ten years, okay. Phil Young husband or Beto Gonzalez? Phil Young husband. Describe three words about your coaching style. Passionate, organized, and motivated. Last one. Very difficult one. Football mm. or golf? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not difficult. It's football all day long. That's not difficult. That's easy. That's the easiest one so far. That was the easiest one so far. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is where my questions lined up for you. Uh, hope you enjoyed uh, the questions, the answers. Do you have any questions for me? Um, what I have one question. You have finally got your passport. Your you have been involved with national team training. You have had success in this country. You're now playing at one of the biggest clubs in the country, if not the region. Do you see yourself being here for the next ten years and and adding to? Do you see yourself being an Indonesian legend? Where do I see myself in 10 years? And do I see myself as a legend? Indonesian will, legend. Will, will, you see, will you see yourself? Is that a name? Uh, the aim is to create a legacy in Indonesia where I will be remembered or where people think of me that I set an example for the country uh, in terms of professionalism. That's an aim I also set for myself because you, you, you spoke about a topic earlier that people should aim to be the best in the world. I know I will not be the best in the world. Simple. I don't have the abilities to be the best in the world. I know that. But my aim is still, my aim is still to be the best uh, in Asia for the moment. Uh, if I will ever reach that, I don't know. I will try to. And if I, if I don't reach that, uh, at least I tried everything I could. So with that being said, where do I see myself? I wish to play outside Indonesia one day because to be to be able to improve myself, I think I need that. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, I will become in the fact that I will be too confident and too comfortable in Indonesia, where my uh, where my growth will not increase but will drop at a certain moment. And I, then I choose for the most secure way. So with the passport as well, I think now I have the possibility to be able to reach beyond and and uh, and increase my chances of potential again so we will see where that where that where that where that ends of what is the maximum for me as a player but with that mindset i hope to create a a legacy for for people and 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 for the youth that anything is possible and i think with me having the indonesian citizenship after three and a half years in the country is something that that people can already look up to and say, wow, nothing is impossible. If you really want something, yeah. go out and get it. And I think I did that and I'm not done. It's just the beginning for me. 
and I hope I can continue my uh, my way up. Awesome. Very good. A last question. Incoming national team head coach, brand new off the plane, doesn't know anything. What's the one bit of advice you give him? Ooh. Listen to experienced people in the country about mm. the Indonesian culture and football culture. Have your vision ready and your way of playing and don't get distracted by opinion of people. Uh, but in, in having mind the Indonesian culture and the Indonesian football culture, but stick to your own plan and don't get distracted by your plan. If it works, if it not works, you will see in the end, but otherwise it will be a, a red race, uh, I think, where you will never have a good outcome. Yeah. Okay. Good answer. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would help. That would definitely help. Yeah, for sure. There are more, there are more things here, but. Uh... <laughs> oh, a million things we could sit here and talk about. We could be here all day. We often are. We often are sitting here all day by the side of a pool <laughs> talking about football. We do it quite a lot. But uh, no, nah, I think that's the one that's biased. Maybe I will give. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, my friend. I hope You're you welcome. enjoyed it. All right, pal. No See you. Speak soon. Take care, man. All the best Thanks to catch. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. -bye. Yeah. Ciao, ciao. Bye.